the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. How broken is our system of government in America? As a radicalized Supreme Court rearranges the very notions of liberty and regulation, a lot of people are wondering whether it's not just the outcomes that are wrong, but if the process itself is broken. We're going to talk today with a constitutional law expert who's given a lot of thought to where we are with American democracy and whether it is even faithful to the idea of democracy. Great conversation ahead on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Our democracy is in trouble. That's a phrase you could hear pretty frequently over the last few decades coming from people all across the political spectrum. And normally, I would ascribe that expression to people's frustration with outcomes. Their candidate loses, their issue is decided against their interests, and they're bitterly disappointed. And in their minds, in somewhat of a legitimate way, it's a sign that the republic we have just isn't working. But in the last few weeks, as the United States Supreme Court has been issuing a flurry of opinions to end its current term, the idea that democracy is in trouble has really taken on a more serious and threatening dynamic. The justices have overturned a 50-year precedent that guaranteed women's reproductive rights, struck down long-standing restraints on concealed handgun rights, and they stand poised and expected to gut the power of the federal government to regulate climate change and other pollution. Now, let's be clear. The court itself is not a democratic branch. Its justices are appointed by the president and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Technically, it shouldn't matter that the opinions the court has been issuing are popular or unpopular. The justice's job is to produce outcomes that are faithful to the Constitution and to other laws. But here, it's the behavior of the other two branches, the executive and the legislative branches, in producing this conservative court majority that are the problem. Five justices, for instance, were appointed by presidents who were not the choice of the majority of voters. They lost their elections, but still won because of the Electoral College, which is an effort to leaven some influences in democracy and make it about states instead of individuals. 
And there are two justices who got their seats on the court through procedural shenanigans indulged by lawmakers who denied a Democratic president a hearing or vote for his nominee to the court for nearly a year and a half. They were citing the upcoming election and saying that it was not an appropriate time to be confirming a justice. But then just a few years later, they turned around and confirmed a justice for a Republican president during an election, which that president would also go on to lose. Again, the court is not a Democratic branch. But it gets its legitimacy from the Democratic nature of the branches that appoint justices to the court. So if those branches, the presidency and Congress, are compromising fairness and skirting around Democratic influences for preferred outcomes, what does that say about the legitimacy of the court? What does it say about the legitimacy of our democracy? These are very, very serious questions, and I'm not minimizing the damage that the court is doing to many different interests in our country when I say that this is actually a little bit bigger than any one of those decisions. A recent Gallup poll, for instance, showed that just 25% of Americans now say they have a, quote, great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. And that's the lowest rating in the 50 years that Gallup has been asking people that question. So the question we need to ask is, how did we get to this place? This is a process that does not reflect the people. It does not reflect democratic instincts. And it leads us to several questions about the current moment. What happens when Americans lose trust in our democracy? What happens when the institutions that are supposed to reflect that democracy are instead focused on winning, winning for their side at all costs, without regard to anything else. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, talking not just about overturning Roe v. Wade or handgun regulations or gutting the EPA, but the process that led us to these moments. Is our democracy broken? Is one side dedicated to kind of gaming the system to win at all costs, whether it's reflective of the majority or not? And if so, how do we fix that? Is that something we can do at the ballot box? Or is it something that requires a more substantive thinking and review of our democracy, something that maybe changes the structure of our democracy. We've got a really great guest to help walk us through these questions and maybe come up with some answers. University of Michigan law professor and constitutional expert Richard Primus is someone who joins us pretty frequently here on the show to talk about our democracy, to talk about the court, uh, and I'm really happy to welcome him to this conversation. Professor, welcome back to the show. Good morning. 
Happy to be here. Yes. So let's start with that phrase or statement that I just said. Our democracy is in trouble. Uh, You and I have had this conversation, I feel like, over an extended period of time. I don't think I'm... I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds in saying that you also believe that our democracy is in trouble. I do. I think there are a lot of problems with how the system is operating. Um, I think that the, the most imminent threats are probably you know, not even from the court. They're the sort of thing that the country is hearing about through the January 6th hearings in Congress. That is, we're actually having this conversation um, at a time when in our most recent national election, uh, there was a violent attempt to derail the electoral process, which is not the sort of thing that we expect to happen in the United States. Um, But both of these things are going on at the same time, and it's not a coincidence, right? They're both symptoms of a larger problem that is a threat to a system that I think most of us grew up taking for granted as stable and reliable. And it's important not to take it for granted. Uh, Stable democracies with wide participation um, in fair elections they're not the norm in human history. It's exceptional. And if you came of age in the United States in the last part of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st, it might seem like, okay, it's exceptional in human history, but it's here now and it's pretty hardwired and whatever other problems we have, that basic framework is here to stay. And we sort of take it for granted now. And that might not be a justifiable way to look at it. We've seen a lot of strain in the last couple of years, and I don't think it's a thing that we can take for granted going forward. It's a thing that will survive only if a lot of people work hard to make it survive. Yeah. So one of the things that you have said in the past that I thought was really apt uh, when you said it and has been in my mind a lot over the last couple of weeks um, is an analogy that you drew to uh, a pickup basketball game that that uh, you, you, you kind of described our republic as being like a pickup basketball game and uh, you use that to describe the ways in which one side of the political spectrum has been behaving. Uh, and, and I want you to, to repeat that now because I think it's such, a, it's such a great lens for trying to understand what's going on and why, why it doesn't work. Sure. So this is something that I've said to my constitutional law students for many years, um, since long before we had the present justices of the Supreme Court and long before we had the particular political dynamics that gave us January 6th. And the idea is that constitutional government is like playground basketball. It's a game in which there are competing sides 
usually represented in our system by the major political parties. But it's also a cooperative enterprise. Um, there's a competition, but the competition has to be one where the two sides are willing to play fair with each other to keep the game going. There's no, um, there's no referee, there's no higher authority that will make sure that the game is played fairly and can keep going. We sometimes think of the courts as if they were a neutral referee in the game of constitutional government. But they're not. Um, they're part of the game. And they're not part of the game in the same way that elected politicians are, but they're part of the game. And the first rule of playground basketball is no one can get bigger than the game. Right? No one can think that winning every round is more important than respecting your opponents and respecting the spirit of the game, and therefore playing fair. Because if you start to forget that, um, if you start to think of it as a win-at-all-costs game, someone will take the ball and go home. Right? The game will break down if there isn't a level of you know, trust on both sides. That uh, More or less, right, we're trying to play fair to keep the game going with each other. And when that breaks down, you, you can't keep playing, right? And constitutional government is a lot like that. Constitutional government, like playground basketball, requires each side to accept some losses. It requires each side to acknowledge that when someone calls a foul, right, you have to accept the call of the foul. Um, it requires each side to, be, to, to think, we'll win some and we'll lose some. And we accept our losses and keep playing as a way of encouraging the other side to accept its losses and keep playing. And we hope we win more than we lose, but we understand that we're going to win some and we're going to lose some to keep it going. Yeah. In American government... There have been times when the major competitors have had that attitude toward each other, and there have been times when they haven't. So um, in most of the 20th century, um, from uh, sometime at the beginning of the 20th century, almost through to the end, that was basically the attitude of the major political parties toward each other. That is to say, the Democrats and the Republicans each wanted to win elections, right? They wanted to win as many elections as they could. But they weren't fundamentally trying to put the other party out of business, right? And they were willing to accept losses on the assumption that be a, there will be a next election, right? And we'll come back and try to win it then. In the 19th century, um, there were a couple of stretches where the political parties did not think of each other that way. Um, you know, most famously and most tragically, um, the game broke down in the 1850s mm -hmm. when the major political competitors in the United States decided that the differences between them were too great 
to be able to continue as one system, or really to be fair, um, uh, the Democratic Party um, w- was at the time the party of the South, and the Republican Party was at the time the party of the North. And the southern states decided, when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, that they were out of the game, right? that they were not willing to accept the loss and keep playing. Mm-hmm. And that gave us a bloody civil war. Um, in the aftermath, right, a generation or two generations after, having more or less decided that we didn't want to go down that road again, we developed a party competition where the two sides were committed to keeping the game going with each other without coming to that sort of extreme. Now, part of what enabled that to go on in a more healthy way in the 20th century is that for most of the 20th century, people's partisan identifications did not reliably map their constitutional worldviews. Here's what I mean by that. Um, We had Democrats, we had Republicans, we had political competition. Sometimes the political competition was fierce or even dirty. Um, And we had a set of constitutional issues through the 20th century. But where people stood on the constitutional issues was not always reliably a reflection of where they stood on the partisan issues. I'll give two big examples that are familiar to most Americans today. Um, One was about the issue of race, and especially Jim Crow segregation Mm -hmm. in the American South. In the 1950s and 60s, that was probably the biggest constitutional issue on the national agenda. It was deeply divisive, um, and sometimes the, it was divisive to the point of violence. But it was not a partisan issue. That's to say, it's not that there were Democrats on one side of the racial segregation issue and Republicans on the other side. Um, the issues split the Democratic Party internally very deeply um, because the the Democrats were still largely a party of the white South plus various coalition allies that they developed in other parts of the country. And because the issue was an issue that split a party internally instead of being an issue between the two parties, the deep, deep conflict over racial segregation did not become a deep, deep conflict that governed everything between the political parties. And then next, right, the abortion issue, mm-hmm. which is on everyone's mind for good reason now, right? Um, lots of people have said in the 50 years since Roe that Roe was a, a, a move by the Supreme Court that was deeply divisive um, and had all sorts of terrible political consequences because it was so politically inflammatory and divisive. And that's, um, that's not actually what happened. The abortion issue became enormously politically divisive starting about 10 years after Roe. But Roe itself was not a partisan decision. 
it was decided 7-2 on the Supreme Court. The two dissenters were one Democrat, one Democratic appointee and one Republican appointee. Mm -hmm. The seven justices in the majority were mostly Republican appointees and a couple of Democratic appointees. Public opinion polling at the time showed that the differences in opinion in the country about abortion were not so different among Democrats and Republicans. That meant that when the courts decided an issue that was deeply divisive in the sense that many, many people had very, very strong views about it, those strong views weren't reflected automatically in every partisan election. Right? Um, you could be on either side of the abortion issue and be a Republican or be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And that meant also that the courts, when they, even when they were ideologically divided, the ideological division did not map a partisan division. And that's why, through the beginning of the 21st century, lots of issues um, remained... Um, well, that, that's why through the 20th through the beginning of the 21st century, it was possible for the courts to continue making decisions in line with what they had made before, even though there was now a division in the political parties that mapped their worldviews because the judges were old. Um, here's, here, here's what I mean. In the 1960s and 70s, and even into the 80s, the legal elite of the Republican Party was internally divided on big issues like abortion and affirmative action. You could be a Republican and be on either side of those issues. Right. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't had a majority of Democratic appointees in more than 50 years. Right. More than 50 years. Right. Um, it's been a, it was a Republican majority court that decided Roe. It was a court with eight Republican and one Democratic appointee that decided Casey mm -hmm. in 1992, which upheld Roe and said, it's a fundamental principle in our judicial practice that we stay with decisions that we've made rather than revisiting everything. Right? Why? Right? Because the law has to be stable. And because... Everyone has to be willing to accept things about the law as they are, even if they're not what they like, right. so that other people will accept other things about the law, even if they're not what they like. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to cut you off, uh, Richard. But I do want to get to a, a quick break and come back uh, and continue talking about. American democracy in the context of uh, this kind of minority rule that we are seeing take over uh, various branches of, of government, and including the Supreme Court. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of these rulings that we are seeing come from the court? What do you make of American democracy? Are these rulings in conflict with the idea of majority rule? And what would it take 
to do it differently? What would you like to change, maybe, about our system? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll come back with Richard Primus and your comments and questions after a break. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. We are in the middle of a really interesting conversation with University of Michigan law professor Richard Primus about what's going on in our country right now in terms of majority rule versus minority rule. Uh, The recent flurry of Supreme Court opinions about abortion and gun rights, an expected opinion uh, about the scope of uh, government regulation over climate change and other pollution, all have us wondering about how the majority can protect its interests in a country that has many mechanisms that allow minority political interests to carry the day. Things like the Electoral College, for instance, which says that even if you lose the presidential election, you can end up as the winner if you win enough states instead of enough people. Uh, Things like the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, which says that you have to have 60 votes, not just 50, uh, in order to do anything of significance. Uh, These are carve-outs that were part of the idea of balancing our democracy, but they seem to have produced a situation in which a minority political interest can really run roughshod over the process. Uh, We're talking about what effect that has on our faith in democratic institutions, but also what we could do about it. Uh, How can you solve those problems? We want to hear from you as well on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of these opinions. Tell us what you think of how they relate to uh, majoritarian versus minority rule. Uh, Also tell us what you might change about the system to make it seem more reflective of the majority. Uh, Also give us a call and let us know if you think this is much ado about not very much, if you think that this is about spoil sporting, uh, that uh, uh, progressive interests who are upset with uh, abortion rulings and gun rulings and things like that are just complaining about those outcomes and that the system works just fine. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll work into the conversation. Richard, before we get to uh, our listeners, I do want to have you talk about this uh, idea of the minority carve-outs, I guess you, you, you might call them, in the Republic. Things that were Uh, in many cases designed by the founders themselves to make sure that we didn't live under tyrannical majorities. I think the flip side of that is that they might never have imagined that uh, those carve-outs could create a tyrannical minority, which is, I think, what a lot of 
progressives and and maybe even uh, a lot of independents believe is is happening now. But but how important are those minority carve outs and are they the things we should be thinking about changing? Are they part of the infrastructure that should uh, should be altered to to be more reflective and respectful of uh, majoritarian leanings? Uh, they're extremely important. And the single most important one, easily, is the United States Senate. Um, the, even if, so everybody knows, right, we all learn in grade school that we have two houses of Congress and that one is elected directly by the people. Even that is not majoritarian in the way that it should be because so many districts are gerrymandered. Mm-hmm. Gerrymandering is an enormous problem for, um, for majority rule. Um, but the Senate, more so because each state gets the same representation and we have widely varying populations, um, the Senate is an enormous potential stumbling block to majority rule. Now, we should, even if we had two houses, both of them elected on the basis of population, there would still be a healthy check on majority tyranny simply because we have two houses in Congress, right, and also a president to pass legislation, which means you've got to win a bunch of elections and not just one, mm-hmm. right, in order to be able to pass laws. Right? We would still have checks and balances. And in fact, um, some of the most important framers of the Constitution understood, even in 1787 when they wrote the Constitution, that giving every state the same representation in the Senate was a terrible idea, right? There would be a huge pathology in the government. Um, James Madison, uh, you know, frequently remembered as the father of the Constitution, um, thought it was such a terrible idea when the convention was about to agree to having every state get equal representation that he said the whole thing might not be worth it if we had to do that. That's not usually how we remember the framers thinking about it. Um, the framers adopted the compromise where each state would get the same representation in the Senate. To be blunt, not because anyone thought it was a really good idea, but because the small states had the threat advantage of saying, we will walk if you don't give us this. It was basically an extortion of power. Um, And then we cleaned it up later on, right? That is to say, um, when the framers went to the public and said, please ratify our Constitution, they didn't say, by the way, it has this really, really, really awful Senate in it. Right? They came up with reasons to think that it was actually a good idea to do things that way, and the civics books have repeated those ideas ever since. But from the beginning, it was a matter of extortion. We call it, in the history books, the Great Compromise, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one house by population, one house by states. It wasn't a compromise in the normal sense. that we th- Normally we think of a compromise as being something where both sides say, okay, we give something and you give something. What happened to the Constitutional Convention was, more or less, the small states just outvoted the big states and said, we're going to do it this way. And there is a way that by reading the Constitution itself, you can tell that the framers understood that the deal stank from the beginning. And that is this. Um, the Constitution can be amended. Right? One of the most important things about the Constitution is that it can be amended. It's very hard to amend the Constitution, but it can be amended. 
there's one thing in the Constitution that can't be amended. The Constitution says that the equal representation of states in the Senate can never be changed right. without the consent of each state that is being deprived of that representation. Why do you make something unamendable? You make something unamendable if you know that it's the first thing that people will try to change, mm. right? Because it's the thing that's no good. Here's the most ominous thing about it. There were two big fundamental compromises made at the Constitutional Convention, right? Not just the one. Um, uh, the one was over the Senate. The other was over slavery right. in representation, right? The infamous three-fifths compromise about how to represent the slave population in Congress. We usually think of the 13th Amendment, which eliminated slavery, as a constitutional success story, right? That is, slavery was a great evil, but eventually through the process of constitutional amendment, it was eliminated. But think about it just a little bit more. We had to fight a civil war to undo that compromise. If we had not had the Civil War, there's no way that the Southern state legislatures would have agreed in the 1860s to a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. Right? It, 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 could, it could not have been fixed. I'm not saying that it means that we would still have chattel slavery in the United States in the 21st century. Right? History is complicated, and lots of things happen over a very, very, very long period of time. But the point is... We had to fight a civil war to fix that one. I hope we will not have to fight a civil war to fix the Senate problem. But the Senate problem is a very, very, very big problem. Mm -hmm. There are more than 60 people in California for every person in Wyoming. The proportions are so out of whack and so much beyond anything that people at the founding were themselves contemplating. And the problem is getting worse because population trends in the modern world are that um, the metropolitan areas are growing larger and the rural areas are becoming more and more population depleted, which means we will have more and more and more of the population in the largest states represented by a very small number of senators and a small population electing a very large number of senators. It is a ticking time bomb at the center of American constitutional legitimacy. And it matters. Right? American policy on a ton of issues would be really different if we had senators elected in proportion to the population. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is because it would be so different that the people who are advantaged by the present arrangement don't want to let it go. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who defends the present system thinks of it only that way. Right? We've all been taught that it's really important to have two senators from each state, that they represent the states and not the people, and that that's a good thing. It, it's very hard to make sense, though, of what that actually means. In the end, we can have a whole conversation just about this itself. I talk about it with students for, like, full hours. Um, but it is a very serious problem, and as it impacts the court, it's of course, you know, the, 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 the problem is pretty direct. Yeah. The Senate has to confirm judicial appointments, which means that without 
which means that a party that can control a majority of the Senate can prevent the other party from ever confirming judges. And, last point, that was not a problem before, well, that was not a, a prohibitive problem before the last 10 years in the way that it is now. Yeah. See, through the 20th century, there was a general consensus that presidents appointed judges, and if they were qualified, they were confirmed. Not always, right? Once in a while, a majority opposition in the Senate blocked a judge, right? The very, very famous example from the late 20th century is Robert Bork, who was nominated by President Reagan and blocked by a Democratic Senate. But the key thing to remember about that episode is that the Democratic Senate didn't block all the Republican nominees, right? There was one one. that was too extreme, right? right? And they blocked him, right? The president put up a different nominee, and he was confirmed. A couple of years later, the Republican president put up Clarence Thomas, and he was confirmed. Today, since Merrick Garland, we live in an environment where it seems pretty clear that a majority in the Senate, if it can, will block the other side's nominees no matter who they are. That's the breakdown of playground basketball. That's the situation that the system isn't really built, I think, to be able to handle in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. Call and join this really, really illuminating conversation about the state of our democracy and the state of majority rule versus minority considerations in our democracy. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. Uh, Vic Neal on Twitter says, the single most important thing that needs to happen is all eligible voters need, absolutely need to get out, register, inform themselves on issues, and most importantly, vote. The more citizens that vote, the less likely the right will win, and they know that. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, Anna, Anna in downtown Detroit. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank Hi. you. How uh-huh. are you guys? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for the great conversation. I have uh, just two um, thought bites to offer. Mm-hmm. One, regarding the judges that are appointed for life, to me personally, it seems imbalanced to have someone making such important decisions um, stay there for life in the end, which is how I feel it is now. You end up having decisions made that are based on their prime uh, issues which were instilled to them in a completely different era with mm. technology advancing at the speed that it is and society changing so much. Um, I feel like decisions represent a population in a society a few decades back. I don't feel like yeah. it is accurately representing um, who we are now as a nation, as a society. Mm. And my second uh, thought would be more aimed towards immigration issues. I've always, I myself am an immigrant. I fought uh, a long immigration battle just to stay in the country. And uh, personally, I don't feel comfortable stepping up in any kind of activist way to make my voice heard. Uh, I'm not allowed to vote. Um, and I feel like there are so many immigrants in some of these states that there are just 
so many voices not being heard. There's yeah. no safe way for them to speak up. Um, no local safe gathering to have conversations with them. Right. They're uh, just a completely misheard group. Yeah, Anna, that's a, th- those are both really great points. Uh, I'm glad you called and and offered those. Uh, uh, Richard, we are uh, coming up on another break, so uh, it, but, but, but I want to give you quickly a chance to, to respond to Anna's ideas, especially this idea of the lifetime tenure uh, in the in the third branch, uh, um, you know that's something that gets discussed every once in a while. I happen to be somebody who sees the value of people having that lifetime tenure, but but also worries about uh, the distance that Anna's talking about. Is that something we should be debating? Yes, I I, I think that lifetime tenure for federal judges is a well motivated idea gone wrong, and there are better ways to do what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Judges in the federal system have lifetime tenure to prevent them from uh, having to cater to constituencies when they make their decisions, right? They're supposed to be independent. They're supposed to not be trying to please anyone. And that means that they don't stand for re-election, and they don't worry about where their next paycheck will come from um, if they have to leave this job, right? They're, they're set here, and they can be fully independent. And judicial independence, in a lot of ways, is a really good idea. Um, but... Lifetime uh, means, first of all, as Anna said, that you could be there for too long and be out of touch. Mm-hmm. It also means um, that you, if you're there for too long, you start to confuse the role with yourself personally. Yeah. You start to think that like you are a person who wields all this authority and for good reason and should be able to you know, do things as you want, you become sort of like a, a member of a titled nobility, which is not a good idea in a democracy. Um, uh, and if you cycle through more quickly, you maybe have a little more humility about the fact that it's not you, it's the office. And lifetime also means that judges can time their retirements strategically, which means that um, a, a court that has a majority of appointees of a particular political party if, it, if, they, if its members choose to retire only when that party has the White House, mm-hmm. they can keep their majority going for a very long time, even if their side loses most of the presidential elections. We could fix all of this and still have judicial independence in a bunch of different ways. And since I know we're coming up on a break, I won't talk about all of them. But you could have a system where judges serve for fixed terms, um, people talk about 18 years, 15 years, 20 years, long enough so that you can really get good at the job and be mature in it, um, but not so long that it's too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I think at the Supreme Court, the rule ought to be, you can't serve anymore after that time, um, and you also can't hold another job. Um, so that you're, you, you have no incentive to please anyone else. You continue to draw your same judicial salary for the rest of your life. That's your pension, mm-hmm. right? But you're out of power. You can't come um, back. I think we bench. would yeah. do much better under a system like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we are going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about our democracy with Richard Primus and with you 
the listeners. Uh, we'll get to Joel and Carlton, Melissa in Metro Detroit, John on the east side next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Richard Primus. He's a University of Michigan law professor and constitutional law expert. We are having a really interesting conversation about what the spate of seemingly anti-majoritarian Supreme Court rulings means in our democracy. Does that mean that our democracy is in trouble because uh, the democratic branches that create uh, the majorities on the court uh, have been doing things themselves that don't necessarily reflect majority interests in order to gain control of the court. Does that give you less faith in what the court does or says? Uh, give us a call and let us know how you feel about those opinions, but also about this bigger question about democracy in our country. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Let's go next to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. So um, I was, it's been a great presentation by your guest today, and uh, I'm, I'm so it's refreshing not to hear him complaining, just stating the facts. Mm-hmm. We get too emotional when, when all this stuff happens. And, you know, like with the voting restrictions, I, I've often said if, you know, the Republicans, they make lemonade out of lemons, and the Democrats just complain. Go out and get people voter IDs. Do what you have to do. With the abortion thing, there's a lot of big money in, in the fight for women's rights. We just have to offset the, the issues. Um, what I want to say is that um, Representative uh, Alexander Casa Cortez was on uh, Colbert the other night, and she laid out the history and the the fixes. And so I want to know how, how your guest feels about the uh, the expansion of the Supreme Court mm. and also the. Um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the other one. Uh, I think you're thinking of the end of the filibuster. In yes, the, the end of the filibuster. Yeah. yeah. Um, as as responses to this. The, yeah. the, this is checks and balances, right? Right. right. Uh, great question, and uh, I'm glad you called, John. Uh, Richard, we don't have a terrible amount of time left, but I do want get, to get you to respond to, to, to both those questions. Yeah. So, so briefly, I'm in favor of eliminating the filibuster, I mean, we could have a long conversation about why about it, but I don't think the filibuster serves a really important purpose, and I do think that under present circumstances, it makes a lot of trouble. I think we should get rid of it. Hmm. I'm not in favor of court expansion. Um, I'm not in favor of court expansion because under, we can't actually have court expansion unless there was a bipartisan agreement to expand the court. We can't have court expansion without actually destroying the court as a check. Mm-hmm. The Democrats will expand it, right? But then the Republicans will win an election, and they'll expand it right back, right? 
And now the game has broken down because neither side will respect the decisions of a court that is just obviously the tool of whoever won the last election. Instead of court expansion, I think we should change the appointment method to the court so that over time the court more reliably reflects the, the results of national elections. And one way we could do that is have a system where there's a justice appointed every two years, right? And someone has to rotate off the court. Every president will get two appointments per term. Over the course of a few terms, like if you win a bunch of elections, you can have a majority. And that will give people the reasonable promise that if you vote and you're active and you organize and you win in the democratic small d political process, the courts will not always be stacked against you. That strikes me as a better way to go. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like uh, that we're under threat of people not taking the court seriously? You and I have talked before about the idea that the things that the court decides don't have enforcement mechanisms, many of them. Uh, and it is, again, this kind of pickup basketball kind of idea that, okay, well, these are the rules we've agreed to and we'll, we'll go all, all along with it. Do you worry that we're close to the, to the point where people start saying, well, I don't see this as legitimate and so it's just not going to be what we do? I do. I do worry about that. Um, I, I don't think that the fault, if that happens, is only of the people who won't listen. Um, it, it's also sometimes of the judges uh, you know, who are you know, pushing too hard in ways that they shouldn't push. But I do worry about it. Um, and, I, because, and I think that it's important to remember um, uh, you know, that, but it, it, that the courts serve a very useful function, even if they are not neutral arbiters, right? Um, a lot of people think, I don't like the courts because they're anti-democratic and they're shutting us down. And that's true a lot of the time. But whenever you have that thought, you should also think, sometimes the other side's people will be in political power. And when that happens, do I want there to be no judicial check? Or do I want there to be at least an imperfect judicial check? Mm. Hmm. We've got about 30 seconds left, but uh, and maybe this is not a fair time to ask this question. Does this all come apart at this point, or do we go back at some point to a more uh, cohesive and intact, I guess, uh, republic where these things aren't threatening us? I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-part answer, right? First, um, I hope it doesn't come apart. And it's not foreordained. Like, whether it comes apart depends on what we do now, mm. right? Um, people need to be active. People need to be informed. People need to vote, right? People need to talk to people who disagree with them, right? Like, it depends on what we do. But the second thing I think is also really important. There's no going back, right? The wheel of history turns only in one direction. There is no going back. We're not going to go back to a system that functioned in exactly the healthier way that it might have functioned you know, 40 or 50 years ago. We can only go forward. And the future will be different from the past. It's not about restoring exactly how things worked. The question is, which future are we going forward to? Is it one that gives us breakdown that things like January 6th represent? Or is it one where we have a healthy constitutional republic? It can go either way. Yeah. 
Okay, Richard Primus, University of Michigan Law Professor, it is always really great to have you here for these conversations. Thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk to Yao Press about his new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.